You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. So that we can get awesome listener questions and suffer along with them. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Marshall Ryan Maresca, and this is episode 93, Queries and Quandaries. the overall ratio is with our listeners of how many problems we solve for them versus how many problems we give them. I am sure we've created so many problems (laughs) over over the four years of doing this show. So many people were like, oh, fuck. Now I've got to now I've got to do a full astrological chart. (laughs) (laughs) Though, as as we always tell, tell our listeners, you don't you don't have to. But if you want to. Well, see, I think I think that's what it is, is when we say something, it triggers something in them. It's like, I didn't think of that. But now that you've now, said it. Now. Now it's all I can think about. Right. Now it's a brain worm that to, is going to eat me until I fix it. To which I say, you're welcome. Yes. <laughs> welcome. Welcome to this particular, particular club slash addictions. <laughs> Slash problem. Honestly, that is so much of the joy of this for me. <laughs> like, literally four years ago, I thought I was just the singular weirdo who was like this intense about these things. And then we found each other and we found this community of beautiful, beautiful nerds. <laughs> <laughs> Who are I mean, some of them outstrip me, I gotta say. Yeah, like some of the ones in our Discord chat, they're even more more masochistic than I. But it's... I guess it just goes to show that, you know, no matter how strange that you think that you are, there's a group (laughs) of people out there where you you fit in. (laughs) Who are your people? They also have artistic talent I don't have, which I greatly admire. Oh, yeah. It's part of why, like, there's certain kinds of design that I will just never be able to do for my world building. At least not on paper, because I, I, I can't draw. I can't. I've never developed the talent for drawing. And they have. And it's so cool. I love seeing their stuff come up in the channel. Oh, yeah. Some of it is just absolutely gorgeous. And, and I'm going to shout out one of them whose who's name and username I forget, but who designs everything like it's like part of a magazine or part of like all the, all of their world buildings of it's like... It, it literally, it looks like a full infographic, like you got a pamphlet on like what the, what the elven hot springs are, are like and where you can go. And like, it, it's beautiful. I, and I'm sorry, beautiful, brilliant person on our Discord chat. I don't remember your name, <laughs> but chef's kiss. Love it. Our amazing Discord people. And and happy new year right yes when this it's actually the new year now it will it will be the new year it is not here (laughs) on this side of things where we're recording but it will be when you're hearing it presuming there was not the 2023 apocalypse but you know at this point (laughs) it's anybody's guess (laughs) yeah we just kind of we record all these episodes on faith now (laughs) (laughs) oh god 
everyone just head on into 2023 real quiet. Don't touch anything. I feel like we tried that last year. Like, we were so gentle in trying to coax 2022 oh, into you, existence. And yet it's, know, it's some, still bit us. Somebody wasn't. Somebody, somebody screwed up somewhere. <sighs> Clearly. It was. We're going to find him. Once again, nobody declare that this is going to be your year. Like, just no. It's no one's year. Just, just, it's no one's year. And we all, I think we've reached the point where we all know this. It's like, if I end the year yeah. with as many functional limbs Set the bar as low. I had at the beginning, that's a victory. <laughs> Check the number of fingers and toes going in. Check the number of fingers and toes coming out. That's, Call it a win. But... Call it a win. But no, I think I, I think that we are ending the year slash beginning the year on a great note, answering some um, listener questions and and listener questions at a more 301 level to go with kind of our our theme this year. So we have some some real quandaries to dig into. Do you know what? Um, we actually started the 301 thing last last season, like last year. Yeah, I completely forgot that. I thought it's all been one year. That's okay. That's true. That was that was season three's thing. Season four thing, like we didn't really have a, a set theme, but it's kind of been mm-hmm. it's kind of been aesthetic. Aesthetic. It's it's the accidental yeah. aesthetic season. But I, we're still <laughs> yes. in three oh. It's like the second semester of three oh one. It is. And this it's is like a six credit class anyway. So yeah, obviously, it's true. Obviously. Right. We're, we're giving you that carry over to the next semester before we actually grade you thing. Yeah. <laughs> The capstone project where we have high expectations from from all of but you. speaking of high expectations we have big questions from our our listeners our students do, do we call them we don't call them students no because no. i don't want to have to grade them I, no grading and 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 honestly <laughs> that's true and we learn from them i think it's true um, as much that's as because we'll anything. get questions where we're like Oh, I never thought of that. And now, now where are the ones? <laughs> Fuck. Ah, <laughs> now, yes. I now I have to. I have to think about that. The tables turn. Damn it. Now How I have to work out magma tables. flow. Damn it. <laughs> More math. Or now I have to travel to Hawaii to watch the volcano and chart how it moves. Which... No, it's a work trip. Exactly. Yeah, it is. You can write that off on your taxes or something. Although Hawaii doesn't want tourists, and I want to respect that. So Iceland. Iceland has volcanoes, right? And Iceland hot springs. Volcanoes. <laughs> and they really want people to come. They have the whole the whole um, ad campaign with the Icelandic horses. We'll answer your work email for you while you're gone. This, I haven't seen this, is, this but now I need to. This is news to me, too. <laughs> but I'm... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the, the the Icelandic horses will answer your email for you. They, that sounds excellent. They seem just to get you very to well trained. I love it. I, I, Perfect. I need to know more. <laughs> yeah, apparently they're even more skilled than that one that could count. <laughs> so yeah, so we asked our listeners for we are not already just... <laughs> guinea friends. <laughs> it's the cocoa. I've got I've got the sugar. Um, we asked our listeners for not just generic world building questions, but to really dig into like a particular snarl that they've encountered in their own world building attempts or something world building wise that bugs them in major franchises. Frankly, I'm amazed we didn't get more of those. <laughs> I am too. We, in- we invited <laughs> we, it. Oh, we opened that door and, and people, yeah. a couple of people walked through it, but I was surprised there wasn't more. Um, yes. So a little more nitty gritty Q and A this time, which is exciting. Yes. 
why don't we launch into our, our first question here? Um, from Faith, um, Faith brings up a query slash quandary that is, I think, a really good thing to think about in relationship to world building because um, this question mentions what do you do when you have POV characters who are not necessarily real? They don't exist in the world. And because we can have characters that exist in many different ways in fantasy that, you know, maybe are not in the terrestrial plane or are perhaps deceased or are ideas rather than being actual people or gods or spirits or whatever. I thought this was a very interesting question. And boiled down, um, Faith was asking, what are ways to indicate that your characters, especially POV characters, are not real within a world um like what do you do if some of your characters don't like exist it's it's such a fun question because i can think of so many different reasons that you might have for this like is it a child's imaginary friend is it a fictional figure who nonetheless has like a big effect on the world and i can think like i can think of some great answers visually but writing it out is harder because like the first thing that pops to my mind is Calvin and Hobbes and how Hobbes is real for Calvin but not for anybody else and that shows in the art in, in the scenes where he's you know with Calvin he is fully animated and, and he's a moving tiger to everybody else he's just a stuffed animal so that's a really great way to do it visually but like word wise mm. yeah I think part of the question is how many POVs do you have if you have more than one POV and you can have that other POV revealing that a character is not, no one else is noticing this, especially if you're having people describing the same scene. And in in one POV, this character is perhaps even the narrator and they're very active and then they are like totally absent from other POVs. And that absence is very pronounced and obvious. Like that can be actually, I think a really cool like reveal. I was gonna twist. say like, this is exactly what you're doing when you have like that sort of strong narrator voice that's a third person omniscient that like knows everything but isn't necessarily a real character within the story but is telling that story in some in you know some sort of very strong voiced way like there's third person omniscient that is still just like telling you the story and there's other ones where the narrator has a character to it and feels specific even if it's not a person within like because you can always just imagine that just morgan freeman is narrating the your life or what was that movie it was with uh it was with will ferrell and emma thompson where emma thompson is a writer writing this book that is this very strong narrative voice third person omniscient voice about this man who is Will Ferrell who realizes he's now hearing the narrator in his life and just like what the heck is going on and then and like in her narration she's saying and little did he know that in a month's time he would be dead he's like what <laughs> what's going and then he like finds a literature professor to be like explain to me what's going on and then the literature professor is like well you're crazy clearly until he's like and she said you know she was what little did he know this is like wait a second that like that phrase was the thing that like cued the, lit the literature professor in of like ooh 
maybe maybe this is something and then like found who the writer was and and it's a charming little movie i i highly what is it called stranger than fiction that's what it's called but but yeah like the idea that your point of view character is has a personality but isn't real like i i think we see a lot of that and that can that's a lot about just using a strong narrative voice in that i have questions too about like what we mean by not real like not present in the world or fully imaginary with it within the characters who are present in the world because obviously they're all imaginary in a certain way but like ghost characters i would still say they're real i would still say those are real point of view characters um even if no one else in the world can perceive them but i'm not sure what other if 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 others might think the same way narratively i've been watching um the show ghosts (laughs) on cbs which is actually really quite funny for like sort of an exercise in pov storytelling in some ways like the the premise is that um this lady has moved into a house and then she has an accident and hits her head and suddenly she can see all the ghosts of people that have died in or near the house Um, but her husband can't see them but she can communicate with them and they can communicate with her but no one else sees them and it's it's very funny in the the way the visuals work scene to scene is a really interesting really interesting take on pov storytelling but i'm still not sure that gets to what this question is because i i would absolutely consider all those characters real within the frame of the story well yeah and and i think yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's like it's like you have real within the frame of the story and you have real to whom within the story. Because if you have, you know, even like like characters that are representing ideals or characters that are somehow like spiritual characters, you know, that, that they may very well be very real to some of the characters in the story. And so it's kind of like what how how do we even define real becomes like the 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 philosophical question to dig at before you can answer like what right what what how do you indicate that they aren't real well are they real and is it necessary to indicate that they aren't real or is it more necessary to indicate how they fit into the belief set of right. the world like if it's a ghost, do we have to define that ghosts are or are not real? Or do we just need to know that this person sees and interacts with the ghost and this person does not? Or no one else is seeing this ghost, but this ghost is right. seeing others. Like, you know what I mean? Like knowing yeah. their interaction relationship. Like relationship might become more important than actual, or you know. You could do something where say the narrator is, the POV narrator is dead, but their pov narration like it's not like they're an active ghost who's flitting about the house but like i'm thinking what is it sunset boulevard where the movie opens with the guy dead in a pool and the voiceover is like yep that's me poor son of a bitch and (laughs) and then it's he narrates it of everything that happened that leads up to him getting killed but like it's not like he's walking around as a ghost it's just like he's telling the story about how he died and so is that is that somebody who's not real within the world he's no longer real and every like every example i'm coming up with is visual Mm. rather than written because 
um, the sixth sense, which I've never actually seen. <laughs> you, you've I absorbed know. it through. What the gimmick is. Osmosis. I know what the gimmick is. <laughs> the dude, dude's a dead. He's go, he's a ghost. Spoilers um, for Fight twenty Club. year old movies, friends. That has a that one actually. Yeah, whatever. Yes, um, <laughs> you've missed your window if you have. But Fight Club was a book it. first. Fight Club actually, yeah. Well, that's Either. true. I haven't read it though. I wonder how. How it that plays out there. That, that yeah. might be a really good study because that one actually is a fully imaginary but The imaginary character is not character. the point of view character, I don't think. I think the narrator, who in the movie is just referred to as True. the narrator, I think, is the point of view character who has disassociated himself so much that he's created this, again, spoilers for a 20 year old movie's friend, um, that he's created this other person to be himself and like lost his own identity. So, yeah, I haven't. I haven't read the book, but that might be well, and, a place to go. And in Fight Club makes me think too, like at what point, and Sixth Sense, at what point in the story do you want your reader to know that a character is or is not perceived as real by the rest of the world? Is yeah. that something that you want them to know from the very get-go? Or is it actually more effective to save that and reveal it later? Um, because it, it can run gimmicky and it can be confusing or it can be absolutely yeah. brilliant yeah. to have that reveal later of like, oh, oh, wait, that 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 person was not actually a person. Because, I mean, we've seen like tons of those movies where it's like, oh, that person wasn't real this whole time and like or other other forms of that unreliable narrator story where a character we think is there the whole time is then revealed like, oh, no, that was I mean, and again, Fight Club is a classic example of that. But again, that's always that the narrator is the real person who is unreliable rather than this version of unreliable narrator who they're the ones who are the imaginary person, which I think is an interesting idea. I've never seen it done. I'm sure there's a ki- I'm sure there are kids books that are that are narrated by the imaginary friend. I just don't know what they are. But if that hasn't been written, it needs yeah. to be. That would be a brilliant and kids book. And so... I mean, a big thing is, like, how, how do you show that? With movies, you have different... Movies and television, you have different tools at your disposal, obviously. You know, that you're working in a visual frame. So you can do things like that person never actually interacted with or touched anything. Or that person, every time somebody asks a question, you know, they're, they never actually ask this person directly. And so you have those little tricks you can do where it seems like they're part of a scene, but they're really not. You can probably use something similar to that within within the text, where, say, that person who is your point of view character who treats the imaginary person like they're real. You know, and, and I'm thinking, too, depending on the voice of the character and depending on what you're doing with it, there is no reason that the, that, that character can't come out and say... Right. I'm not real. If the, if the point is not to trick the reader, then, you know. Then you can do all kinds of fun things like that. I mean, yeah. that could even be a choice of typography to indicate, you know, when you're in one of the unreal perspectives. The thing popping into my head is one of the great classic examples of telling us in advance that something is not necessarily real. Marley was dead to begin with. Mm-hmm. This you must yeah, understand just... or nothing that follows <laughs> will seem wondrous. It's like telling you right out, bam, first line, dude's dead. So when he shows up later... You get to make a choice. Is he real or not? Is he? An undigested crumb. Yes. Is he more gravy than grave? It's, it's, or, you know, is Scrooge hallucinating or is it a real spirit? 
Well, that's up to the reader. So that's fun. So yeah, I think that there's there's a lot of ways that you can you can play with real and unreal characters and and I think a lot of it is just what you want to do with it and then investigating what kind of tools are at your disposal. So another character-based question um, from Krista. Krista writes, building villains is one of my personal struggles. Do you have any tips or tricks for making the evils of your world? And do you have any villain tropes that you feel are underutilized? I had trouble with this at first because I I started out writing a world where the villain was the <laughs> patriarchy, essentially. And there were lots of small figures that embodied that throughout the book, but there wasn't like a central antagonist figure. And while real life is very often that way, it may not seem like it after the last six years, but there there are very rarely is there actually just one villain in a situation, right? In real life, that's how it works. But in a book, you need some figure driving the action and reaction for your heroes. There needs to be a focal point for the villainy. So I essentially had to, like, distill down all, all the, the ugly things that I wanted to be talking about and give them a spokesperson. You know, put them in a single character's mouth most prominently to have that guy be the target. And wow, did that guy turn out to be a dick. As he should be. Like, I hate this dude. I've actually I've actually come to love writing him because, like, getting into that headspace and, and figuring out how he justifies everything to himself with this one has this guy has no hesitation, no conscience. He's so firmly convinced of his rightness. It's a weird headspace to occupy, but it makes for some fun writing. And I think that's the the crux of it is just getting into that headspace and writing them like whatever it is they're doing is the most reasonable thing for them to possibly do and it's you know it, it's a bit of a cliche what thing to say but the you know write your villains like they're the heroes of their own story they are doing whatever they're doing because they think it's the right thing to do like very few villains are just cackling and you know raising their raising their goblet and saying gentlemen to evil I mean, exactly. I think that it's it's very rare to find a real human person who's like, I'm going to do something <laughs> evil today. I'm going to wake up and choose evil. I mean, I think that everyone thinks that they're doing the right thing. And so in a lot of ways, defining what is what even is evil within the world and within the story, like it has to be something that somebody could understand as good or at least necessary. And I think sometimes necessary is one of those spots that you can play with a lot. Maybe this person does not even think this is a great thing, but they think that they have to do it or they think that there's no other real choice. So they, they need to, to be behaving in this way. And so I think that you can have a lot of, a lot of room to play with when you think about how is a world, how is the, how is your world set up? What are the problems that exist in that world already? And how are people benefiting from those inequities? How are people feeling boxed in by those inequities? And then your heroes and villains kind of can fall out in terms of what they're, what they're doing in reaction to the world around them and how they choose to engage with the world around them. And that necessary can be incredibly petty because 
you know, as we've discussed before, pettiness can drive so much. Of course, I'm flashed into that comic book panel that frequently gets shared on the interwebs over and over again because it's beautiful, where Spider-Man is saying to the villains, like, with all your knowledge, you could have cured cancer. And instead of turning people into dinosaurs and the villains is like, I didn't want to cure cancer. I want to turn people into dinosaurs. That's Sauron, by the way. It's Sauron, yeah. I knew it was Sauron. Yes, I just, a, you know. the mutant yes. in the Savage Land, yes. It's like, that's what I wanted to do. And, and and really, is there anything wrong with turning people into dinosaurs? I mean... Yes, 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 there probably is. However... There's, there's, issues, of, there's issues of consent, but you can't tell me you couldn't find people who want to be turned into dinosaurs. That's true. Like, I mean... After the last couple of years, it sounds like a good please, option. I'll happily be an ankylosaurus. I'm good with it. Go beat things up with my tail. Yeah, that would feel good. It would. It would feel really good. Or triceratops charge something just yes. straight into it. Boom. That would feel nice. Yes. Yes. So I'm saying he could have found volunteers, <laughs> probably, <laughs> and that would have been less evil, and he still would have gotten his joy of turning people into dinosaurs. Yeah, like. I, I think of the line from Dr. Horrible. The world is a mess and I just need to rule it. And I'm like, <laughs> mood, brother. Like, <laughs> there are days when I'm like, you know, if I just made the rules and everyone followed them, things would be fine. <laughs> it's like, I, I mean, find your villain by was... leaning into that autocratic instinct <laughs> that I think we all have a little bit. And most like, of us go, I... actually, no, that would not be good. But let your villains go. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, or, or just, I'm too tired for that. Like, you know, I could take over the world and definitely improve quite a few things, but I'm It'd be exhausting. I'm exhausted It'd be meetings, meetings, meetings. So, so, <laughs> so, so your villain has to have, like, just untapped reservoirs of energy to pull this stuff off, too. I think that that's, that's key. I think also thinking about, yeah, you, you sort of said it earlier, what they think they're protecting and who benefits from the systems, people will go a long way, as our world shows, to protect their privileges. And so it's like, what what are they defending in essence? And perhaps then what are they cloaking that defense in? They're defending their privilege. They're cloaking it in the language of patriotism. Am I talking about people from 60 BC or yesterday? You don't know, do you? Because <laughs> they're the same problems. You know, and, and I think it is entirely possible, too, to write a world and a story in which there are no outright villains. There are just two groups of people who understand things very differently or both need the same thing and actually need it, but they both can't have it. And so at that point, you're writing, you know, who are you writing as sympathetic and how are you going to balance that with a side that that is actually not evil and they really aren't doing anything wrong they're just doing something that the other side does not like or cannot actually you know is untenable for them for me writing writing the fae for fairy bargains that was they 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 aren't any more evil than humans are they just function in an entirely different way and sometimes it maybe doesn't work out so fantastic for people but is that really their fault no. Like sharks. Sharks aren't evil. They just occasionally like to go chompers on surfers' legs. Because, you know, you are crunchy and taste good with ketchup. Right. But, I mean, and it can be that they have, like, 
my necessity or the thing that I'm trying to do might be a fundamentally like decent thing where again you went too far I mean which like tends to be the way that that a number of villains go um Dr. Freeze Mr. Freeze sorry like his whole thing is I just want to cure my wife which you know reasonable and the and I don't care how many people I kill to do that Less so. I, Whoa, buddy. <laughs> Poison Ivy? Poison Ivy? Yeah. Did nothing wrong. Just <laughs> I just want a better ecology for the world, and it's better without all of you in it. Or or you know, Killmonger in Black Panther. I mean, there's plenty of people who are, you know, Killmonger is right. Plenty of people who are Magneto is right. I mean, that's, you know. Oh, Magneto is right. <laughs> I'm on that train. And it's what, makes, it was what, it's what makes Killmonger such a fascinating villain. I love him as an antagonist because he is right up to a point. <laughs> you know, it's like your ideology is, is, is pretty sound. Your actions less so. They... <laughs> But, I mean, even that movie ends with T'Challa basically going, yes, you were right. I'm going to change what I'm doing because you're right. And I'm sorry it ended up this yeah. way. I'm, I'm just going to find a way to fix things that's less murdery. Yeah. <laughs> but fundamentally, <laughs> you're well, right. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I think to some just even what, what priority are the values in? Because the only difference between a hero and a villain can be that the priorities are just in a different order. Like, you know, we value justice and equality and not killing people. Yeah. I just happen to value not killing people a little less. All right. So we have a, a fantastic sort of big franchise gripe and, and multi-franchise <laughs> here. This is not any one. Um, from Victoria. Victoria writes... Um, so Star Trek and Star Wars, various other big sci-fi franchises have a habit of tossing around random advanced medical technology like candy, but there's one thing that gets completely ignored, how that technology, or if we're talking fantasy, magic, um, whatever speculative elements, affect pregnancy and childbirth. Victoria points out we don't see this played with very much, and often when we do, it's, it's, it's ignored that there could be any effect on, on pregnancy or childbirth. In, in a speculative universe. I have so many opinions I mean, about this. So many opinions. Did, do oh do we God. start with Padme Amidala? Or? I mean, I feel like that, that's like the Ur example. It really right, is. Right? And like, it pisses me off on multiple levels <laughs> because it's a retcon for one thing because Leia says damn good and well in Return of the Jedi that she remembers her mom and the EU material up until uh, Revenge of the Sith indicated that Leia's mom lived until Leia was like three. That she she actually remembered her, not just like force remembered her from inside the womb or whatever fucking hand waving shit they came Which up is with. Just you know, that's just crap. I'm sorry, I'm gonna call it. It's just it's just and I crap. I just I. Mm, it was just handled so poorly in in the movie. Ah, and I know there's lots of arguments about like, did Padme die of sad? Did she give up? <laughs> was Anakin secretly force draining her life or whatever? Whatever side of that argument you come down on, you're still having to lampshade that apparently the Star Wars universe does not have OBGYNs. They can rebuild <laughs> Anakin Skywalker after he's lost limbs to a volcano. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> but they don't even know that she's having twins. <laughs> <laughs> like, did this woman see a doctor at all? 
ever? No, they were keeping you know, and, everything and they secret. They could have they could have <laughs> written that in that way too, right? Like that she was choosing to avoid right medical care yeah. and treatment, and and that was why you know. But but no, no, that's not. So I I feel like to properly address this issue, I have to like back way up, and I, it's like you kind of have to attack this from some degree from the element of death in childbirth was never as common as we fictionalize it. When you go back and look at death records, and and I've, I've done this, I pulled records from like 1720 and crunched all the numbers myself because I just had to figure it out. Um, <laughs> you end up on maternal mortality rates that I believe were about one in 1,000, which is not good compared to the developed world, but actually is about on par with what the WHO records as kind of the, the worst um, in developing world countries. So if you think of one in 1,000 women dying in childbirth, that is like way lower numbers than anything that we fictionalize, including pieces written historically. And it's like, well, why is this? Probably because it was tragic and dramatic. It's good and drama. if you're writing a story in which someone's going to kick it, having someone die in childbirth is tragic and dramatic. So, like, historically, it was never as common as we, like, imagine that it was to begin with. And when we're carrying it forward in storytelling, we aren't carrying forward an authentic thing. We're carrying forward a trope. It's a trope. Yeah. It's, it's a presumption. And so it's like... So are you going to examine that trope and say, does that trope make sense within the world that I have written? Or are you just going to use the trope without thinking about it or considering it? And I think that Victoria very brightly points out it frequently gets used, Game of Thrones, without thinking about it or considering it. Well, and the other thing is that, like, I've I've seen some similar numbers from, I think it was slightly earlier, I think it was uh, 15th, 16th century stuff, your chance as a woman of dying in childbirth over the course of your life was not high, but it was a not uncommon cause of death overall. But in an individual birth, it wasn't nearly that high. But when you had, you know, 12 kids, when you had 12 childbirths throughout your life, the overall chances increased. But in fiction, it's so often, yeah, it's like the the one, one and done. You're, you're out, you're out, you're out. <laughs> Sorry. That's all you had well, in you. And, and because, like, you know, all the things that people died of a lot more commonly, like, you know, fevers and degenerative lung maladies from the crappy air, like, that's way less dramatic. So we're not, we're not going to write that. No, someone's, someone's going to die while bringing new life into the world. Like, there's just, like, there's a reason that that's... It feels like it has, a, it's... it has a lot to do with fridging tropes, too. Like yeah. whether it's the man whose wife dies or mm-hmm. the the young hero who never knew his mother because she tragically kicked it, like it's it's always used as someone else's motivation. Yeah, or just yeah. a convenient way to get rid of a woman that who too. would complicate the plot otherwise. So just how dare <laughs> just get out? We don't need you anymore. But I think there's also. Yeah. It's an area where there seems to be, like, a lack of imagination in terms of, like, what advanced medicine or advanced magic could do to make birth easier, which, I mean, especially on something like Star Trek, where it seems they want to just keep the beats of what a giving birth story is, regardless of 
would this still make sense within no. the 24th Fuck century? It. Yeah. I Transport mean, that kid right well, out of me. <laughs> in Take in it out. The episode of Voyager where where uh, where Samantha Wildman is born, that is actually what happens. Because but they were going to do it naturally, but then complications and then like instead of a cesarean, it is a just transport the baby out. And then the baby dies, but also because of Why would anyone not do that? Something something magical tech, blah blah blah. The ship actually split into two separate ships, and <laughs> on one ship things went badly and both the baby and Harry Kim die. And on the other ship, everything goes badly, and Harry Kim and the baby are the only survivors who get to the other ship before it blows. It's a weird-ass episode. I am so not sad <laughs> I stopped watching Voyager. <laughs> but they did, in fact, beam the baby out. To, to, when, but only, but I mean, only when sign me up it was for like, that. oh, there's complications. This is an emergency. Which I think says something, which I think says something about the romanticization of natural childbirth. For one thing, like that, that it's not really a childbirth if you don't go through it naturally. And like my mom got shit about that because she had a cesarean for both of her daughters because I was I was fucked up. I was not trying to come into the world the right way. So I had to be. Oh, yeah. But like there's still an well, attitude I, about and, cesareans and, that you didn't I mean, really. Admittedly, you probably just knew that something was up about <laughs> out here and we're like. It's like, I'm not sure about this, Mom. Nope. I'm not sure. Pass. Trek has I'm a whole sure. pastoral romanticization so there's, there's all around also, which is weird. There is that. But then also the other the other Trek pregnancy I enjoy is is the absolute lunacy when is Kira's yes when Nana visitor was pregnant and they had to write it into the plot line and it became <laughs> insane because um, Keiko, she's traveling with Keiko O'Brien and Bashir conveniently it's the three of them that are on a shuttle when something goes terribly wrong for somewhat hand waved reasons to save the baby Keiko gets hurt. Yeah, Keiko gets hurt. This baby's already, like, a few months yeah. along. But to save the baby, he transplants it into Kira's womb. <laughs> and then he can't take it back out again because Bajoran pregnancies apparently run a lot faster than human pregnancies. And so it's already vascularized. And, and he can't get the baby back out again and put it back in the first womb because... <laughs> because, yes, Romana? <laughs> what about placentas? They're not addressed <laughs> okay. at all. Um, like, cause, like, seriously, but, like, all the, like, like the transplanting or, like, transporting something, like, there's still a placenta. Kay. You gotta take care of that whole situation. How Kira's womb was prepared to receive the baby. Exactly. No idea. There was no placenta there. And then they you have to build an organ. Because, no, because, like, it you're, did. like, literally building an organ. And so you have to do that. It's it's an important step. And then they talk about how th this is why, like, it's going to be a much faster gesticulation because she's Bajoran, even though the baby's still human. But... Then, if you actually do the math on when she actually gives birth, it's actually been way longer than a human pregnancy. <laughs> because it, like, spans two seasons. And I'm not actually sure when, at that point, Nana Visitor actually gave birth, and if it, in fact, lines up anywhere near when Kira gave birth. Although Kira giving birth is hilarious, because apparently Bajorans have to be, like, in a zen state to give birth, and then the baby just, like, water slides out of them. But if they're stressed at all... It won't happen, which I think is very funny. So the whole labor process is one of, like, keeping everything chill. And if you're not being chill in the room, you got to get the fuck out. 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 Get it. Which is Good actually vibes how it should work, here. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> no. I do not need that energy right now. Just, just get out. I mean, I think it's interesting, too, that, like, it's clear that often the people writing 
either in sci-fi or fantasy, haven't thought about all of the ins and outs of pregnancy and childbirth. So to speak. But um, <laughs> and like, I just, it just, it, like, what do you do about placentas? Most complications with pregnancy aren't the like, actually like getting the baby out. Like a lot of them are excessive bleeding or infections afterward. And it's like, you're telling me that your magical system doesn't have coagulants. You can heal battlefield wounds, but we don't have anything to coagulate, you know, a, a bleed. Or your your advanced civilization has got, you know, all kinds of medical tech, but can't can't handle a infection, you know, post-birth or whatever. It's kind of like, eh. We can cure and weird just, space just, disease, but not and just puerperal like, fever. <laughs> the, the, the weird, like, if you ask most women what they want, like, something done about, about their pregnancies, like, can we get rid of morning sickness, please? Or, like, you know, swollen ankles. Like, all these, like, little things that it's, like, I feel like if we had magic or advanced tech, like, we'd, we'd do something about that. So people didn't have to be, like, sucking ginger lozenges and Jolly Ranchers for three months. And I think, I mean, and this is also just part of, like, poor writing. There is that element of sort of leaning on those stereotypes and tropes or, like, twisting them to something different. Like, there's also the Voyager episode where basically Kess goes into heat or, you know, she doesn't get pregnant, but like, it's like, it becomes oh, yeah, that her, was super weird. her moment where she could get pregnant and her ankles are swelling or her, for whatever reason, they give birth out of their backs. And that's like where the organ is, which I mean, I recognize, yes, we all have human actors and, but you want to do something weird, but what? You know, and, and sometimes there's also a choice of like, you don't have to do anything. Yeah. If you can't do this well, maybe you just, maybe you shouldn't. Maybe. <laughs> if you're actually not comfortable writing about this stuff, maybe just put a pin in it. I mean, it also, it like raises, like all the different things that like, for her to get pregnant, your species would have died. <laughs> if, <laughs> I mean, technically her species was dying, so I guess that's, that maybe that's why. But well, like, <laughs> you explained but, it, yeah. I mean, like, look at pandas. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of like that, like, man, just to, like, get to the point where you can get pregnant is a lot of work. Shouldn't it be easier? Then, of course, on the flip side, you have yeah. characters getting pregnant who weren't planning on it. And you would think by the 24th century, that would have been something that you would have solved by then. You think? Maybe. But, but again, trope. Dramatic trope that we must have available to us. At least with DS9, Apparently. when when Cassidy Yates gets pregnant... It's at least hand-waved as they both, both Ben and her, missed their shots. Like you were supposed to get a monthly shot or something. But even still, you would think the system would be better than like, you still have to go to the doctor's office. But you know, they also have beautiful Star Trek medicine that is free and you just stroll into the doctor's office at any time and be like what up Bashir <laughs> shots really yeah. again yeah like why is it why is it still yeah, <laughs> once again they can like wavy wavy things over you and you're fine but <laughs> but no you gotta get your shots I think a good part of that stems from with both and a lot of sci-fi things is we have a hard time imagining what medicine in general can be that far ahead in the future so Sure, they have scanners that like tell them everything with with one thing, and that's that's beautiful and easy. But there's still like we have to do surgery to repair the artery. We need some form of medication, and the solutions are still 
even though like the methods of administering them might be quote unquote more advanced, the solutions are still basically the same things you would see today. Like we have to, we have to cut in there and take this out or we have to, you know, or we, or we need to give you a shot. I mean, that's basically still what they're doing. (laughs) So basically upshot Victoria asks, does that bug you as much as it bugs me? And the answer is clearly. (laughs) Yes. Yes, it does. All right, so um, MH has a really good question about depicting cultural change and just the fact that people of different ages have different cultural references. So how do you handle showing those generational gaps and those cultural kind of touch point differences within a world, Um, especially if, if things that we would understand very quickly, like the Beatles or Minecraft or, you know, don't exist in your world, so they don't have easy corollaries. Like, how do you on-ramp that for people? How do you teach them who the Beatles are so that then they know what you're talking about when you make that reference? Right. Yeah. And and beyond that, avoiding it feeling forced or awkward or just taking up too much damn room. You will notice this a lot. You'll notice this more in television or movie tropes where usually there's, like, the one thing and, like, any culture will have that one thing as being the one thing. And when it's first mentioned in a passing reference, it's fine. But then when you're seven years later on, you know, and still like the Bajorans only seem to have one food, even though we've been there <laughs> for seven years. But it's still, always Hasperat. It's always Hasperat. Nothing but Hasperat. No, it's nothing but Hasperat. Romulans have nothing but Romulan ale. I mean, I think you you will see the same sort of thing. Like you will, in something like that, where like the old person has the Beatles or I mean, I'm sure the franchise that we will not name has some of these, but I can't think of them off the top of my head. But, you know, the one magician who, you know, who was a band, I'm sure there was a band. There must have been a band. <laughs> I'm talking about Harry Potter, but like, I'm sure there's like. Oh, OK. I'm I wasn't sure, sure if it was that or Game of Thrones. Oh, no, no. Game <laughs> yeah, of the Weird Sisters. Made. The Weird Sisters are the one band. Yeah, there's the one band. And yeah. and butterbeer is the one drink. So you can it, it's easy to put one thing as like a as a as a big cultural touchstone and then have that be the thing that like will you you'll use to date somebody. It's like, oh, they're if they're a Beatles fan, that means that they're old, but not necessarily because you know the kids today, they're the Beatles are still relevant. If they're an Eagles fan. If they're an Eagles fan, like nobody's still an Eagles fan. Yeah, I mean I think I think you show it through reaction. Yeah how people react to to things that either are or are not of. And I think you mostly show it when they're reacting to something that is of not of their generation. So like, you know, the character is moving through the spaceport and, oh God, why are they playing that new Shijabinda music? You know, like, or, oh God, I've gotten old enough that the music of my youth is now what they're playing in grocery stores. <laughs> Little things like that that sort of can clue you in to how new or old a certain reference is. Or just straight up have it in a conversation. I'm thinking about the um, Pompeii episode of Doctor Who. When, you know, this is set in, in 79 AD. And the daughter is wearing a new style of skirt. And her father's like, well, you are not going out like that. And she says, all the girls in Rome are wearing it like this now, Dad. Like, simple things like that. Little conversation, couple of lines can communicate those differences. And that those differences exist. I think, like, knowing what it is you're trying to show are you trying to show age difference or are you trying to 
include cultural references for some reason and and the fact that they are of different generations is is important or or maybe it's even not that important but it's it's part of the play and at that point it's like well so are you going to use like the language that we all know to talk about this you're not going out like that like we we get that that trope immediately we know what that means we, that means <laughs> this is newfangled and pushing the envelope and whatever it is it could be a hat or it could be like what color of of glow whatever someone has in their you know sci-fi halo that they wear whatever it is we know exactly what it means so it's like are you trying to teach someone that this thing is newfangled and different or are you trying to teach someone this person is older like you can you can adjust whatever language you're doing to teach your reader what it is that you want to teach them. I just had this vision of like, you know, no child of mine will go out wearing that. But like where the cultural mores have flipped that it's more prudish, like the new generation is the prudish right. ones. So it's like no child of mine is going out with a skirt that goes all the way to their ankles. You pull that a up cage. above your knees before you... <laughs> a cage crinoline and three petticoats. Why in my day we were wearing miniskirts. But yeah, um, I think if your story is not about music, as an example, then like there's no reason to be too specific about the music if you're using that as like the cultural difference. You can just drop random band names and have the other person be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Or like, dad, nobody listens to them anymore. Those bands don't even put stuff out on, you know, whatever the medium of your your time is you know or like i thought you loved the widgets no no one listens to the widgets anymore and then what that really is is it becomes a character moment it mm-hmm. becomes you know dad's trying to connect with with youth but is unable to as with everything i think showing it through character does so so much oh my god i can actually talk about andor because <laughs> there's a great thing about this at andor we were saying before we started recording that this was going to one way or another devolve into me yelling about Andor because I finally watched it. Spoilers. It is that kind of reversal. It's very small, very small. Um, but it is that kind of reversal where Mon Mothma's daughter is a little neocon. And it's really, it's impactful because like she appears to be wanting an arranged marriage, which her mom had and is not a big fan of. And, and her, like, she's got other relatives that are like, heck no, absolutely not. But this little 13-year-old is, like, all into the traditionalism. And you can sort of see it in her clothes. You can see it in different aspects of, of how she interacts with the world. It's, re- it's really, really interesting because it is communicating both character and universe at that point. It is, it is telling you the world building and what things have changed and what things are changing back. Um, and how that, you know, is part of the whole greater galaxies slide into, <laughs> in, into greater authoritarianism. But you see it in micro. You see it in inside this one, this one home and this one family. And I think that's another thing you can do in terms of like just showing generational difference. Is this is you'll have to like dive into like the history of your world up until this point. Is think about the different events that shaped the life and mind of your older generation compared to the events that shaped your younger generation. You could even go so far as to for each generation figure out what their what their JFK moment is. Like for most baby boomers, like it's, you know, do you know where you were 
when you found out JFK was shot. For most Gen X, it's the Challenger. For most for most millennials, it's it's September 11th. 9/11. Yeah. Yep. And for and for I think the generation after us for Gen Z, it's going to be the pandemic. Yeah. Which isn't even a single event, but that's going to be their defining experience in a lot of ways. In the way that for um you know, our grandparents or great-grandparents, it was the depression sort of on the whole formed a worldview. And if you can like just come up with say for every generation two or three touchstones that help define how they are, then you'll have this just greater sense of what that character is, generationally speaking. And I think the rest will all fall into place. And it doesn't need to necessarily be specific. I mean, you can make specific cultural references, but the point is you don't need to teach somebody who the Beatles are within your world. You put that into context and the rest will follow. So I think that one thing that can be helpful too is to consider how different generations are engaging with culture because if you think about how say like my parents engage with culture is still very much like watching network television and listening to the radio whereas people younger than me have probably never tuned in at eight o'clock for anything you know what i mean (laughs) so thinking about how different different generations are even like getting their culture how monolithic is it do you have a world and a generation which everyone is is there a beatles there might not be a beatles depending on how your world works and how that generation engages with with their culture with their you know with their music with their whatever it could be that it's much more scattered and that could be a major difference between generations just how much people are plugged into like everyone knows about this one thing everyone is watching must-see tv on thursday nights like we don't do that anymore i understand that the youths are now using tiktok as a search engine which i have so many questions about because i've tried it for some things just out of curiosity and it did not work and i think it might work for like pop culture searching but like if you what you need is historical information you are not going to find it that way right it's basically like somebody made a reference to this meme but didn't actually show me the meme. Like I have to go find that. <laughs> it's basically useful for searching for things that are connected to TikTok in the first place and then yeah. Yeah, and not beyond that. But for MH, um as a final thought for you, um our episode with Fonda Lee, The Times They Are a Changin, episode 64 went deep on a lot of these thoughts. So I, I would also refer you back to that episode if you haven't listened to it yet. It's awesome, because Fonda's awesome. Highly recommend. So from George, George writes that, I feel like often as I go through my world notes, I have a checklist in my subconscious, like this is derivative, this is unimaginative, plagiarize this. So how do you, how do you fight those feelings? Especially because, you know, I would add... At the end of the day, there isn't actually anything that is truly 100% original. <laughs> We're all deriving from something. So how do you how can you tell if you are being derivative or unoriginal or if you're just being hard on yourself? A lot of times you are being hard on yourself, but I don't know how old George is who wrote this. But certainly in your younger years, you're either probably writing fanfic and or writing something that isn't fanfic, but is so utterly derivative of the thing that you're stealing from. I know I wrote 
several things that were absolutely Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy with the serial numbers barely buffed. (laughs) (laughs) Not rubbed off, just maybe smeared a bit. Maybe smeared a little bit. But that's going to be part of your learning process. Okay, there is this movie called Sing Street. And it is about these young Irish boys who are like in middle school or so. And because there's a cute girl who lives across the street, uh, they start a band, as you do. Mostly as an excuse to be like, we have to shoot a video. Can we get the cute girl in the video? And, And things progress from there. But so much of their being a band, and it's also set in the 80s, is drives from the main kid's older brother being like, you got to listen to Duran Duran. You got to listen to The Clash. And you can see where they as a band are totally just like copying Duran Duran, copying The Clash, and just like, and it's just a blatant like, we're copying this. But then it evolves slowly over the course of the movie till they have sort of their own vibe and their own sound that they earned through going through this process of just this is cool i'm gonna do exactly this and i think to a degree like yeah you're gonna have that now and again i'm presuming george is young that is part of the process of getting there that's part of it you're gonna be derivative until you find your voice i mean i did that for reams and reams and reams of paper over many years all with the same character. <laughs> it was great. My my tween and early teen years, it was a character in the Star Wars universe, except then as I got new things that I latched onto, I just started grafting them all on. Like, Moulin Rouge came out, so she became a courtesan. <laughs> I watched La Femme Nikita, so she became an assassin. Like, whatever I was watching at the time, I just grafted it onto the same character. It was absurd. It was the most Mary Sue-ish thing, and I loved it, and it is why I will defend to my death the right of 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 fans to write ridiculous things and to write self-insert characters and to write mary sues because a it's fun and b you're completely right marshall that is part of how you learn it's part of how you do develop your own style and which parts of the imitation feel more natural for you which ones feel like they fit a certain character in a certain story better and you start pulling pieces of these things together instead of just lifting them wholesale it's a process I mean, I think that there's there's a difference between, and I think that you sense it and you, you know it when you start to hit it, if you can kind of get some distance, between copying stuff and having a conversation with the things that inspire you. And when you hit the point where you can like acknowledge where some of your ideas are coming from, but also how you've changed them and how you've reworked it and how it's different and how you're saying something new you've started to have a conversation instead of just copying. And I think that that's, that's kind of a, a, a turning point uh, maybe for a lot of, of folks as they're developing their world building and their voice. I think that one thing sometimes people will do is they won't engage with as much source material as I think because they're afraid of copying. They're afraid like, oh, if I, I'll put this in my brain and then it's going to come out later. But it's like, unless you read a ton and watch a ton and you know play a ton, you don't know all the stuff that's out there and the ideas that you think are super original aren't it's not that you copied them but but until you have read all the stuff that that people have already done you don't realize how common some stuff 
is. And you don't realize how you can have a conversation and do it better. I was going to say, so many times you have that literary author who's, I am going to write a science fiction novel, and I'm going to do this wholly original idea of what it would be if the robots had a revolution. It's like, and you just be like, excuse me, sir, we've, we've, We've been there. We've done that. Literally, that was the first thing where the word robot came from. And we, we've we been playing with that. I mean, like, yes, please write your book, but don't think you invented it. <laughs> right. Right. And and once you once you know what else is out there and what else, you know, people have already played with, I mean, it gives you license to play with it in whole different ways and in new ways and actually, like, engage on what you want to engage with and and have have the story and the conversation that you want to have because you know you're not going to come up with a wholly original idea most likely like most likely you're not going to come up with the thing that literally no one has ever thought of anything like this ever in the history of speculative fiction but you can sure as heck have something new to say about it yeah and part of that is trusting yourself and trusting your own voice it is also something that you will find in revisions Maybe your first draft is hugely derivative and sounds like another author's voice or follows a plot pattern that you picked up from somewhere. Okay, now as you go through your second draft, make it more you. And and just sort of the natural process of doing that, of interrogating the choices that you make along the way and making changes. Interrogating them in the way that we suggest, which is the you know choose, don't presume model. If you're doing that, then as you revise and rewrite, it's going to start sounding more original, more like you and your voice and your unique perspective on the world. You may not be telling a unique story. You may not be coming up with something that no one's ever thought of before. But your perspective is unique because you are an an absolute individual, whoever you are. None of us have the same set of experiences. That voice is in you. You just got to chisel it out and crack it open. And some of the coolest ideas out there started from the sort of derivative like i really love star trek except i think it's weird that humans seem to be at the center of everything and then come up with your own space opera thing where you know humans are are a minor part of a larger galactic community and work from there or something i mean that's just off the top of my head but I really like this kind of fantasy, except why isn't there a revolution where they kill all the kings? And and then start from there. Any of those are beautiful places to start from and then finding your own voice from there. The, the only other thing I'll say is that also the derivations can be useful to you when you're pitching because, you know, this is X meets Y is, is helpful, is good shorthand when you're trying to get the idea across really succinctly. Indeed. I will say, too, when it comes to a micro level, like a micro world building level, that sometimes the individual pieces may exist elsewhere. But if you're putting them together in unique and interesting ways, that can be really fun. So maybe you picked up that idea from Harry Potter, just that little piece. And maybe it's a little derivative, but but you're combining it in a weird way with Star Trek. And somehow it's a whole new thing. So I think that there's you know, or, or research, like, you know, yeah, so that's, that's just pretty much something that existed in 16th century France, and you found it in, in a history book somewhere. But you're deploying it in a very interesting way. So like, that's, that's a cool thing, too, on the micro level. 
not just the macro level. Right. That those things that are derivative or plagiarized or whatever, if they're from the five or six different things that excited you, then that synthesis is going to create something at least different. And hopefully, like you see, you know exactly where you stole what from. But hopefully the re- it won't be quite as obvious to the reader if you've if you've hidden your work well. All right. Do we have time for one last question? I mean, I think so. Nobody actually holds us to a time limit. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. It's not like it's not like we got to like fit this in between between the sponsors or something. Yeah, the the the, the music is not going to start to play on us. <laughs> but one more from Krista, uh, who writes. What is a silly little something that you threw into your world just because it makes you smile or you couldn't resist? Or if you have not yet, do you have something like that sitting on a back burner waiting for an opportunity? I mean, I feel like I have I have lots of Easter eggs that, that are definitely silly little somethings. Oh, hell yes. That some people might catch and some people might not. The sheer number of Shakespeare references in, in a book set in ancient Rome is absurd. I should not be allowed to get away with that. And yet somehow I did. But also no references to no one stopped me. But also references to some of my favorite ones in the Bloodstained Shade are actually um, references to Sappho. I basically I stole I stole Sappho poetry and I changed it slightly and attributed it to a poet called Hyacinth. And once again, derivation. If you do it intentionally, it's a homage <laughs> and an Easter egg. <laughs> Slip it right in there. But I just, it makes me smile to, to, to know that those Easter eggs are hiding in there and that maybe somebody will catch them. I mean, I have put so many dumb things like that in the Meridian books. Like, I can't even count them all. Like, I, I have Your a- Your shawarma scene? I have a shawarma scene, you know, in, in People in the City. I mean, but also I have a reference to uh, Green Lantern and Green Arrow in, in, in Thorn of Denton Hill. I have- I have a joke in Imposters of Aventil that only the guys who lived on my dorm floor in college will get. And the, the you know, the Good. Venn diagram overlap between those guys and who will actually read the book is like three people. But still, that joke is there and it's for them. Um, and like street names all throughout Meridane are like nods and homages to people um and yeah i do i mean i do that all the time because let alone like whenever i need to like have say like five new characters who should be named but aren't going to be like major things i will like find a way to what's another like set of five characters that are like a, a big five? Oh no imposters of aventil at the very beginning, Veronix beats up a different, you know, drug selling group. And that is a blatant reference to a popular franchise, both the names of the four people in the group and where they where they camp out. I'm not going to say what it is, but anybody who's read that and knows this other franchise, if you don't get it, <laughs> then like I probably hit it just well enough but like i didn't hide it that much the one i'm working on now definitely has so many jokes that like only people i went to grad school with are gonna get because they're just that deep in the shakespeare weeds um, highly almost recommend. every highly I, I, almost, highly endorse 
Oh, but it's not even like Shakespeare references. It's like other things. Like almost every side character, either their first name or their surname, is lifted from one of the original shareholders or play players of the Chamberlain's men or Lord Strange's men. <laughs> Just because I could. None of them are lifted wholesale, but I'll take like part of the name and then attach a different name to it. Just because I needed, like you said, a background character who needs a name. It's like, ah, fuck it. I, I will steal that from the Chamberlain's men. Highly endorse. I feel like I spend much, much of, of, of my writing process just amusing myself <laughs> with stupid crap. I mean, I, the, the, the entire Unraveled Kingdom is, is in some ways me slipping in silly little somethings about clothes. Like, <laughs> over and over. Um, like, there are multiple, like, favorite garments that make their way into, into the books just because I'm like, oh, I love that. That museum piece, I'm going to sneak that in somehow. Um, and the Fairy Bargains book, I think that one of my, my silly little somethings is I took the the tradition of wassailing, which is when you go and sing to your trees um, so that they'll give you a lot of fruit the next year and you give them toast. <laughs> like As you toast. do. They're important. You toast They're important. bread yeah. and you, you give it to, because the, the trees clearly need that. Um, but I, I turned it into like a, a fairy bargaining tradition. And I amused myself again by rewriting traditional wassail songs, but like for, for the fae. So that was, that was just, that was just purely me being like, this is a random corner of geekery that I can play with. I'll do it. Rowena, I want the lookbook for the Unraveled Kingdom now. Like, oh, I, want... I, I like started a Pinterest board at some point and then it kind of like trailed off. But yes, I should at I want, some point I want, like, together the, like the image the, the, with the language that you the description. Use. Yeah. yeah, that'd be awesome. Do that. That'd be that. fun. <laughs> with all these like ties back to the last question of like, there is just all this stuff in our head and we're just going to put it through the meat grinder and put it out there and hopefully hit our work well enough but like all these things of silly things that we think about that we then shove into our worlds that maybe started as something derivative or plagiarized but then becomes this silly little something like oh wait i can make this joke and it'll make me laugh and nobody will realize i'm doing it that's great and i think i think that's that's a good part of the fun of doing this and you know lord knows lord knows you need to make it fun if it if it's not fun i don't i don't know i don't know why you're doing this to yourself Hi you, thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on January 18th where we'll be talking about incorporating natural and supernatural disasters. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, including pre-ordering Cass's latest, The Bloodstained Shade, or my new novelette, Hultachaya, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com 
We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.